I just know that Genesis 1:27 says that we are all created in the image of God. And so that's sort of been my, you know, my mantra has been, no matter what this person has done, at the end of the day, they're still created in the image of God. The worst thing they have ever done cannot define who they are. And so being able to overlook someone's past behavior in order to see into the, into the core of who they are and what they can be is something that God seems to have gifted me with. You know, you have to see beyond what the physical eyes can see. I was a rebel. I, I turned away from God. I had my own journey, you know, away from the heart of the Father. And, and yet he never judged or gauged me by what I did during that season of my life. I was always just his son. And so if I truly believe that somebody is creating the image of God and, and that they may have flawed that image for a moment, if I truly believe that, the way that I express that to them is by trusting them. From the nonprofit organization Orphan Aid Liberia, this is the Love Period Podcast, a show about the stories of leaders, creators, groundbreakers, and pioneers who are currently leading movements or organizations who have a focus on serving other people who themselves at some point had to lift their anchor, step out in faith, step out into the unknown to lead them where they are today. I'm your host, Jacob Burson, and on this episode of the Love Period Podcast, we talk to Bruce Deal. Bruce is the founder and CEO of the City of Refuge Homeless Shelter in Atlanta, Georgia. The City of Refuge is a homeless shelter, but it's so much more than that. Bruce and his team are not just on mission to provide housing, but they also provide health and wellness care, human trafficking restoration and care, vocational training with on-site culinary arts school and an auto center where students can learn skills to work in the auto industry. In short, the City of Refuge provides full restoration for their folks in one location. Bruce has been recognized with many community service awards, and most recently, he was presented with the 2018 FBI, Atlanta Directors Community Leadership Award, for him, for his and his City of Refuge team's fight against poverty and human trafficking. Current thought leader Simon Sinek nominated Bruce as someone we can all learn from when it comes to fulfilling our potential. Simon said of Bruce, I've really come to admire the intensity with which Bruce Deal trusts people. He trusts in people who others do not trust. Bruce sees potential in people others do not see. This conversation with Bruce was fantastic. Hearing this story about a preacher's kid from rural Virginia moving into the Bluff of Atlanta, downtown Atlanta, and starting this amazing organization is unbelievable. So join us today in this conversation with Bruce Deal. So many great things. So awesome to have Bruce on today, man. Thanks a lot, Bruce, for joining us. You know, it's my honor. Thanks for the invitation to join you. Yes, sir. We, uh, we've we kind of been following your story. Um, I've been looking at it from a not so far away. We're just right up the street up in Cartersville. Um, super excited to have you on. City of Refuge is kind of, when you look at a biblical example of, of what you desire um, for an organization, what you would seek to desire for God's kingdom, you guys are knocking it out of the park. Well, that's our goal. I mean, you know, obviously everything we do is because of our relationship with God and what we see in scripture about caring for the least of these. And so that's the foundation on which we built the house we call City of Refuge. And we believe if we build it on that foundation, then obviously it's going to be successful. Yes, sir. All right. To kind of some calisthenics, it's a little stretching exercise, getting the muscles loose, getting the mind loose, getting that, get that matter in the brain cleared out. 
We're going to go through a couple of rapid-fire questions so we can get to know a little bit about you. Nothing to throw you off your game too hard. Just, uh, just a couple little exercise questions. All right. You ready? I'm good. All right, Bruce. What was your first car? Uh, my first car was a 1969 Ford Fairlane uh, station wagon. Ugly. <laughs> you realize that that 69 Fairlane station wagon would be a collector's item today. <laughs> well, it may have been, but uh, we gave it away as soon as I could. <laughs> Any rust spots? You realize, How many miles did you put on it? Do you need to know? Oh, I have no idea. Drove it my senior year of high school and then uh, upgraded to a Ford Pinto when I went off to college. That was a heck of an upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Your favorite athlete or actor, somebody that you looked up to as a kid when you were growing up? Uh, you know, when I was growing up, I was a big Dallas Cowboys fan. I've converted to the Falcons now, but Roger Stahlback was always uh, sort of a hero of mine. He was a great quarterback, obviously, but also a man of faith. Yep, there was a, that's a great one. My dad had a, a a painting poster of Roger Staubach in his in his room that's in my grand, grandparents' basement right now. Yeah, great one. All right, if you could spend an afternoon with anyone, alive or dead, who would it be? Uh, it'd be my dad. He passed away about eighteen months ago, and uh, just an incredible man of God, a great father, and uh, we all miss him dearly. And if I had an afternoon, I could choose anybody. I'd I'd spend some time with Cecil. Awesome. Yes, sir. Yep. Just, uh, I would imagine just a generation of a man just from a, with a, with great stories and great lessons to teach, I would imagine. So what book do you find yourself recommending to people the most? You know, I read a book about three years ago called Boys in the Boat, and I've recommended it at least a hundred times since. It's a story of the 1936 rowing Olympic team that went from the United States to Berlin, Germany, and it's just a phenomenal inspiration story and motivation and overcoming obstacles and so it's uh it's it's my most recommended book over the last few years all right i haven't heard of that one i just wrote it down in my notes i will be on amazon as soon as we hang up i gotta check it out this is a tough one real christmas tree or fake christmas tree uh we went fake about five years ago and it's one of the best decisions we've ever made <laughs> you don't realize i know the smell is good for the real tree but with those needles when you don't have to deal with those needles that's that's highly underrated <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we roll it in, flip it up, and roll it out. <laughs> if there was a movie about your life, who would you want to play your character, your role? Oh, what a tough question. Uh, he's too old for me, but I really like Robert Duvall, just crusty around the edges, but with a lot of passion and energy. I'm, you know, I'm a big Eastwood fan, so some of the older guys, I, I don't watch much uh, – Hollywood anymore, so I'm not even sure who the current folks would be, but some of the old guys, Tommy Lee Jones or Eastwood or Robert Duvall. That's the, I'm kind of the same way. I just lost so much touch with watching movies. Robert Duvall is a solid pick. He's, and plus, you're going to win some kind of award. If Duvall is in your movie, you're winning <laughs> right. something. All right, this is where we kind of shift in the podcast. So this the Love Period podcast, we're focused on telling stories of people who have lifted their anchor to pursue something maybe leaving a place of comfort, a, a port of comfort, lifting their anchor and stepping out into the unknown or, or to a place of discomfort. So could you tell us a story or a stories about kind of the maybe a, a moment or the biggest moment where you had to make a decision to lift your anchor and depart from a place of comfort from the known and move into a place of discomfort or the unknown? Uh, sure. Yeah. You know, 21 years ago, I had been in, 
what I call traditional ministry for about 14 years and was invited to go downtown Atlanta and spend six months in a consulting assignment overseeing the closing of a little church and selling the property. And a few weeks into that, a young lady in crisis walked in and asked for assistance. And she brought somebody the following week and they brought somebody the following week and about four months into a six month, what I thought was a six month assignment. We walked into that little church and there were nearly a hundred folks in deepest level of crisis, prostitution, addiction, homelessness, alcoholism, asking for help. And, and my, my, statement to my wife that day was, I felt like we've been conned by God. And it really was a point of decision where we had to decide, are we going to go back to our normal, comfortable suburban church life, or are we going to make a radical decision and leave that and relocate to the, uh, to the inner city of Atlanta? And obviously we made that decision, the latter decision to move to Atlanta, but it was a significant moment. Stands out very clearly in my mind that uh, there was sort of a line in the sand and God would love me either way, but he was inviting me to cross over from a place of uh, pretty much security and comfort and walk into a place that was completely unknown and foreign to us uh, at that point in our life. Yeah, and tell us a little bit about at that time when you made that decision, the initial decision to go there to that church, which was originally, as you said, you were there to, uh, air quote, close the church, kind of find a new home. I would imagine find a new home for the people attending there. Could you kind of paint the picture of what the community looked like in that area at that time? Yeah, you know, it was uh, it was on the edge of the city, like sort of the line between the prosperity and uh, successful part of the city and the, and the part that was more challenging. That the, the particular facility was a 65-year-old church building at the time that was in disrepair and a lot of transients in the community, folks coming and going. And so um, it was it was certainly not what we were used to when it comes to a church facility. And then shortly after accepting the pastor there, my wife felt really drawn by Holy Spirit in her prayer time for us to move to the city. And, you know, we ended up moving in the third floor of that 65 year old church building. So, again, completely out of our comfort zone. And, and it's ironic when they build churches, they don't generally build them for folks to live in. So, you know, we've moved in with no bathtub for our children and with uh, homeless folks living on the front porch and, and a lot of different things that we had not experienced at that point in life. And, and our ministry took us into the toughest zip code, zip code in the state of Georgia with you know, the highest homeless population per capita and the highest number of HIV positive cases and more men and women incarcerated from our zip code than any zip code. So it was, it, it was not a gradual immersion into benevolent care. It was a close one chapter uh, that was sort of sterile and nice and open another chapter that was filled with every challenge you can face. And it, it sort of happened overnight. Yeah, that's unbelievable. You were, you guys were moving into a place where people were moving out of. True. That, that, that's true. It seems as if the, our, our push in our, in our, in our faith walk, it seems that that's where the Holy spirit likes to push us most often. And that's, that is typically the place of, of the initial most discomfort. Now, I was just going to say, you know, the passage of Genesis where Abraham went not knowing where he was going is, is what we felt like. And I think it's what God often wants to do in our lives is he asks us to start a journey. He doesn't tell us how long it's going to take or what it's going to cost us or where we're going to end. Uh, so it, 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 that's where the faith walk becomes reality for us versus just something that we talk about. Yeah. And that's, that's what's difficult to walk in because in today's world, it's so, 
comfort is very easy to find, especially in America, uh, especially in church in the church circles. It's, it's kind of difficult. It was, well, it's not really difficult to find discomfort. It's difficult to make the step into discomfort. Very true. When you were growing up, uh, tell us a little bit about the impact, maybe of particular people in your life that that you think may have built those steps to get you to the place for, I guess, for that ground to be fertile, that soil to be fertile, for you be able to make that decision later in life. What kind of influences did you grow up with that kind of played a role in that? Yeah, you know, I referenced my dad earlier, and he was a pastor for in ministry for 60 years. And we pastor a lot of small rural churches, primarily in Virginia. And dad would work second jobs outside of his pastoral responsibilities to raise his own money to do mission trips around the world. Uh, was a huge supporter of uh, the Navajo Reservation in New Mexico. Would travel back and forth there several times a year. Support folks. So we sort of. I grew up in an environment of benevolent care and compassion ministry, and and preferring others over yourself. And so I think that was just ingrained in me. I, I didn't understand that until much later in life. I actually resented some of it along the way as a young man because it seemed to take away from our own family at times from resources and and things that we could have had that dad chose to give somebody else. But looking back on it, I see how that sort of shaped and defined me and, and even shaped my compassion theology that, that, you know, it is truly better to give than it is to receive. And and to live out the Isaiah 58 and Matthew 25 kind of passages in Scripture. So a lot of influences in my life, but without question, the, the singularly most important and, and most defining was, was my dad who modeled that for me all of my life. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things as a father, um, you, you know you're kind of in the middle of, of raising your kids a certain way, and you know that they don't see it, but then you also try to put yourself in their position where you were when you were coming up that you didn't necessarily see it either at the time. And I, I can say the same thing about my grandfather, World War II uh, generation guy who kind of brought me along the same way. I just, I, I resented <laughs> a lot of the service that he would do, but it wasn't until later in life and especially his passing that I realized what was actually at work at the time. And it's something to be super grateful for. We're trying to emulate that with our five daughters as well four of whom are adults now, but we, we try to remember what our parents sowed into us and, and that we did get it later in life. And so we just want to keep setting that model and standard before them. And that's awesome to do, setting that example. So important. All right. So you've got this church, the Mission Church. Could you kind of get us a little bit of an idea of how that church then becomes the city of refuge? Sure. Yeah, well, early on in the journey, once we got there and and realized that this was not going to look like your normal church, uh, I I started the nonprofit City of Refuge almost immediately upon arriving in the city with an understanding that what we felt like God was asking us to do was outside of normal church practice. And so we wanted to be able to have this outreach that would not be limited to one church, one denomination, one particular school of thought around theology, that it would appeal across the board to uh, to religious individuals, to people of without a faith experience, to the corporate world, to the foundation world. We said, you know, if we can provide the basic life essentials and bring light, hope, and transformation in individuals' lives without restricting that to one particular uh, belief system or church or, or entity, 
we think that we'll have far greater impact. So we, we made that decision early, very intentional, that we wanted to appeal across all spectrums, educational spectrums, socioeconomic spectrums, theology spectrums, and, and invite everybody to a journey that, that was not – uh, the debate was not whether or not we were right from a theological perspective. The debate would only be how do we use our time, talent, and treasure to impact those who find themselves in incredible places of crisis. And and it has worked exceptionally well to not be uh, narrow in our in our focus and and to be wider and broader in our focus with the understanding that we are absolute faith based in everything we do and it's all Christ centered. But we're not going to restrict that. Uh, we're not going to be restrictive in that. We're going to invite everybody who has gifts and talents to come join us in this journey of benefiting those who are not yet at the place in life that some of us happen to be. Right. What was some things when you were early on? Um, what kind of pushback did you, did you when you had this vision and this this kind of focus at the beginning uh, of this broad service? Did you see any kind of pushback? from maybe folks who are giving you guidance or folks that you looked up to or any kind of uh, pushback in terms of you pursuing this mission? Yeah, well, I mean, there, there was some pushback. There was some pushback in, you know, you should, you should remain just a church. And if you, you know, if you go outside of the walls of the church, you're going to water down what you do. Uh, you know, we hear a little bit of that. We hear a little bit of you shouldn't let, quote, unquote, unbelievers volunteer in your organization uh, so that you know we had some some conversations around those things uh we w rather than engage in very much debate about that we just elected to say hey this is our position we feel like it's good for us and and we hope that you'll be willing to walk that with us and see if it works or not so i think it was more more than people necessarily disagreeing with the approach we took out was i think it was more of it was different and they were uncomfortable with the fact that it was not what they were used to. Uh, twenty-one years in, uh, twenty-one years later, we rarely have any of those conversations now. Folks see the success of what God's done at City of Refuge and the number of lives that have been transformed. And so, uh, there are a, a number of organizations around the country that model uh, af after our approach now that we consult with. So it seems to have. Well, it has worked, and it seems as though others see that and are less concerned about whether or not we're narrow in our focus. Right. And, I, and you know, we're, we have the luxury of kind of seeing this story. A lot of folks may be hearing this for the first time of, of 20 years later. Um, and our, our kind of the, the pattern that we watch is early on in a decision to kind of pursue an effort, a lot of things get derailed. The motivation gets derailed in year one or two when it could have been year four or five when things really start to excel uh, in the, in the pursuit. Um, what were some things early on that, you, that kept you motivated? Uh, let's go say city of refuge wise. What are some things early on that kept you motivated and focused when those early times of struggle were coming along? Yeah, good question. The, you know, obviously we, we felt clearly we had heard a call. So we want to remain true to the call, even in tough times. The second thing was that we had, you know, some small victories early. And so I've taught my team, the volunteers initially and now staff that, you know, our focus should always be on the successes and not on the failures, because if you measure this by any standard other than God's standard, there will always be more failures than there are successes. So we can't focus on that. So we would just take every individual life story 
that was positive and successful and just and just repeat that to each other over and over and say this does work it might not work in every situation we might encounter 10 folks and it only works with this one but let's spend all of our energy celebrating this one and now we'll go invest in 10 more and wait on the one that comes out of that so that's really what kept us going was was the individual success stories that we started having literally day one uh, and then they may have been few and far between in those early days, but we still had those moments that we were able to sort of place our, our trust and our confidence that this was the right thing. And yeah, that's an awesome, that's an awesome piece of advice there to, to celebrate those small victories early. That's um, that it can be difficult. It can be the human tendency for whatever reason for us is to kind of focus on the, the failures or the errors and not focus on the small victories. So that's a huge piece of advice. We appreciate that. So. Currently, City of Refuge, Bruce. What's the square foot? What's the square footage you guys are under right now? You know, we're on eight acres of land here in Atlanta with uh, two hundred and ten thousand square feet of warehouse space. Almost five acres under roof is uh, is the footprint of what we have here. Yeah. So, so two hundred and ten thousand square foot of warehouse space. Obviously, you guys did not start your initial vision was not 210,000 square feet. I would imagine a piece of what the City of Refuge is today started in a very small either church closet or something. What, what were the, the initial roots of City of Refuge? What, what did that look like? Yeah, we had a 20,000 square foot church building and we started the outreach uh, programs and, and benevolent care programs downstairs in what we called the Streetlight Cafe, which was about a probably 1,200 square foot kitchen and dining area where we started an after-school program for 20 children and a, and a Saturday night cafe for college students to come in for coffee and cheesecake and bands to play. So we started in about 1,200 square feet in the basement of that church. And uh, 21 years later, as you mentioned, 20, you know, 210,000 square feet plus multiple uh, housing units and, and facilities off campus in the city now. When you were in that 1,200 12, square foot, Bruce, did you, at the, did you envision what the city of refuge looks like today? Was that, even, was that something that you thought was a reality? No. I mean, I, I don't even pretend to have envisioned where we are today. You know, as, as we move forward and, uh, and, and started operating what I call ministry by opportunity. So one thing would present itself, which led to another, which led to another, you know, I began to see that there was a bigger picture here, but I thought that would require us to be in multiple sites around the city. So we provide housing here and vocational training here and addiction recovery here. Had no idea that God would present us with this opportunity for a 210,000 square foot space where we could put all the wraparound services that an individual would need in one location. So, you know, folks want me to speak now about our strategic planning and my vision for this. 21 years ago, and and I just have to be honest with them and say I never saw this coming. This was this caught us all off guard, and uh, and we're just we're just enjoying the journey. Yeah, and nobody wants to hear that. What we want to hear is that you followed these five steps, and that's what led to where you are today. And please tell us that it's going to be easy. <laughs> that's uh, yeah, that that's the that's what folks are looking for, but that's not the story I have to tell. Yeah, ministry by opportunity. I have I have just circled that. That is a that is a awesome piece of advice. I have also heard the story um, of your current spot where City of Refuge is. Bruce, could you tell us a little bit about how you got to that space? 
your yeah I, I woke up one morning and and we were living my wife we have five daughters and we had single moms and their daughters living with us and looked at it and I was living with 23 women in this small 20,000 square foot church building I said you know we need something larger if the ministry is going to continue to grow so a real estate buddy of mine I asked him to come over a bit deeper into the tough toughest neighborhood in in the state and find a building and he came back and described the building to me and, and the opportunity. And I said, well, we certainly would love to talk about that. And so can you find out what the owner would like for that? And so he came back and he said, the owner said he'll take a million six hundred thousand dollars for the property. My counter offer was we don't have any money. And uh, and he turned that generous offer down for about six months. And then six months later, donated the property to us. So Malin Mims, a, a successful businessman in Atlanta that's a great friend of the organization and has been for the last 15 years, donated this property to us 15 years ago and uh, and said, here, I want you to take this and help bring redemption to the community. So it was an incredible, generous gift on his part and generous gift from, from God to us. Yeah, that's what's amazing. It's amazing when you hear stories like that of how God kind of intertwines different lives and different um, different salaries and different financial backgrounds. He can really work amongst all of that and does. And that was how that was launched and created. And uh, it's just an amazing thing to look at today. Um, would you guys, exp- the vocational training side of City of Refuge, which is one of those huge things, because it's one of the great things about City of Refuge is it's not just a it's not just a shelter and it's just providing food and somewhere to sleep. It's also the restoration care and the vocational training. That's, that's, that's also offered to your, to your folks there. Um, When did that piece of the vision kind of come along and and what, what kind of drove that motivation to add that side of it? You know, I think about 10 years ago, we've been at this property four or five years and we had helped a lot of folks come out of homelessness, out of addiction, return from incarceration. And and we saw that we could provide a certain level of assistance, but that they often would lapse back into previous bad behavior or just circumstantial uh, uh, environments that caused them to be back where they were before we met them. And we, and we started to dig in and evaluate that. And one of the biggest gaps was the ability to uh, engage in a livable wage employment opportunity. So, you know, in Atlanta, the uh, recent, most recent report says that it requires $12 and five cents an hour as a single adult to be able to maintain rent, utilities, transportation, food. And so I said, you know, these folks, we can do a whole lot with them. We can pray with them. We can help them off of drugs and alcohol. We can do this and that, but if they can't pay their bills, then they're going to end up in some level of crisis again. And so we started our culinary arts training program about nine years ago, and that has graduated 22 classes of students now. Uh, A few, four years ago, we started our auto training program that's graduated six classes of students, 16-week training program, and students are trained in six areas of light repair and auto maintenance and uh, 100% employment placement from all six of those classes. Last year, we were able to put 156 individuals to work, but we knew that was not enough, so we launched a campaign to raise money to build out a new workforce innovation hub that opened in January of this year. So, so far this year, we put 237 individuals to work. That number will be 400 by the end of the year. So we've added job training programs in security patrol and customer service and package handling 
for UPS. We'll launch an Orkin pest control training program in two weeks. And in September, we will launch uh, an inter-app technology training program to teach code writing for computers and app development and junior development, uh, junior development training for those working in the technology field. Uh, we have landscape training now. So multiple opportunities for men and women to get a skill that will pay them at least a livable wage and often more than that. And they now have a career opportunity, not just a job. And, and we wrap that with soft skills and life skills training on a daily basis as well. They're not just getting the technical skill, but they're getting skills around anger management and conflict resolution and financial literacy uh, to help them be equipped when they leave our place and, and go back into the world as an independent liver. Well, it's, that's unbelievable, Bruce. Have you, how, how um, warming is it when you have people come back who have been through the program who are now living restored lives and, and living, living comfortable, successful lives? How warming is it to see those people come through and come back? Yeah, there's no way really to describe that. It's, it's so overwhelming to see that. Actually, about we have 90 employees now, and about a third of those are former residents or recipients of our service. So our staff even is made up of those individuals. Others who are successful uh, in, in their own culinary field or Napa field, some of whom are supervisors now uh, in, in areas that and their life is together. They're stable in their housing environment. Many of those are reunified with family that they've been separated from. A large number of them have a relationship with Christ that they base their life on. So those those stories just, you know, they they cause your spirit to rise and and again, it goes back to that earlier question about, you know, what, what the same thing that motivated us early on with the struggle is the same thing that motivates us today, 21 years later. And that's the individual success story. Those numbers are just bigger now than they used to be. But that's still what drives us. It's, it's so great to see to think that this organization, for those of us who live in Georgia, is just right down the road in Atlanta and that there's opportunities to plug in down there. Uh, to volunteer. Yeah, well, there's volunteer opportunities all week long. Our, our website is uh, cityofrefugeatl.org, and there's a volunteer tab right there on the front page. And folks can come in for after-school tutoring, mentoring. There's all kind of kids' ministry opportunities. There's uh, work opportunities around the facility and landscaping. There's individual mentorship with those in our housing program, both the homeless housing program and for the victims of trafficking that have been rescued in here, uh, specific skill sets uh, that can be used in volunteerism here, and then a worship experience on Sunday that we invite you know the, the community at large to participate in with us. So yeah, a lot of opportunities here just to come and, and sit and, and experience what's going on or to get your hands dirty and, and be in the middle of some of it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's super awesome. Uh, Bruce, when if with the folks that have kind of come through your your programs and your system, um, you and your position, from what I just from what I've understand and what I've seen just in the couple of times I've been down there, is you you're a you interact. Yeah, we say get your hands there. You interact with your people there. You're not a a hands off, twenty thousand foot. Uh, CEO of the organization, you you tend to be plugged in. Um, what are your that leadership style? And I, I already know the answer to this question, but I'm asking the question anyways. <laughs> that leadership style. What what drives you to be that kind of engaged leader? Well, I don't think I can lead an organization of this type without knowing the personal stories. 
And so, you know, just raising money or just hanging out with donors or just speaking in environments that they invite me to uh, disconnect me from the heartbeat of the city. And so in order for me to be driven to expand City of Refuge into other cities as we're doing now or to tell the story in other environments or to train others, I have to feel the pain of the individuals from my community on a regular basis. Otherwise, I become disconnected and it just becomes a job. And this is not, this was never intended to be a job for me. This is a life calling. And, and if I'm unwilling or unable because of schedule uh, to sit down at the table with somebody that's hungry and talk to them or walk the streets or, you know, go to the basketball court and hang out with the young men from the community or sit with one of the women that's been rescued from trafficking and hear her story. If I don't engage in that on a regular basis, I start to lose my edge and it all becomes perfunctory at that time. So uh, the, the need and, and, the, and the, uh, the need and the desperation of individuals that we come in contact with on a daily basis are what drives us. It's what, it's what motivates us. And so, uh, you know, and it's been an interesting discussion, even with my board of directors as the organization has grown and as demand on my time has intensified around the country. Uh, how do you stay engaged? How do you stay connected to those? And I've been unwilling to concede that and, and will be unwilling to concede that in the future. I have to have those personal relationships. Yes, sir. Man, that's awesome. That's great. That's great advice. Great, great words, Bruce. Um, Simon Sinek, who's kind of a a thought leader of today, he has a great quote about you that I read. He said, Simon said that I have really come to admire the intensity with which Bruce Deal trusts people. He trusts in people that others do not. Bruce sees potential in people that others do not. And when I read that quote, I also had have heard your story before where you talked about early those early days. Uh, in Atlanta, uh, where you had uh, people breaking into your car and into your house and chasing people down streets and having those kind of interactions. You have those two dynamics, but at what you are known for is the ability to trust people still that others do not. Could you tell us a little bit about where that, that motivation and that, that drive comes from? Yeah. And, and I, again, I wish I had a better pat answer for that. I just, I just know that Genesis one twenty seven says that we are all created in the image of God. And so that's sort of been my, you know, my mantra has been no matter what this person has done at the end of the day, they're still created in the image of God. Psalm one thirty nine, they are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so the worst thing they have ever done cannot define who they are. And so being able to overlook someone's past behavior in order to see into the into the core of who they are and what they can be is something that God seems to have gifted me with. And, and I'm not even sure people want me to teach them how to do that. I'm not even sure how to do that. I just go, you know, you have to see beyond what the physical eyes can see. And some of that's out of my own relationship with God and the fact that, you know, I was, I was, in, uh, I was a, re- I was a rebel. I, I turned away from God. I had my own journey you know, away from the heart of the father. And, and yet he never judged or gauged me by what I did during that season of my life. I was always just his son. And so if I truly believe that somebody is creating the image of God and, and that they may have flawed that image for a moment, if I truly believe that, the way that I express that to them is by trusting them and saying, I, I, I think you'll do the right thing. I believe you'll make the right decision. Uh, too often we will tell people that we believe in them, but then we won't give them any leeway 
to start to make decisions on their own. And so we automatically disqualify the statement that we had about believing in them unless we're willing to let them walk out some level of responsibility on their own. Yeah, Bruce, you said you, you kind of thought you wish you had a better answer. I think that's a great answer for that. Is it's it's sometimes it's just that simple. All people are created in the image of God. All people are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's it doesn't. I don't think it really has to be much more complex than that to justify coming from a position of, of trusting people um, and, and seeing that potential in, in each of us because all of us fall short. So yeah, that's a uh, man. That's that's great. That's great there, Bruce. Bruce, you got anything? Um, you got anything currently going on at City of Refuge, kind of new developments, something that we need to be looking out for coming down the pipeline? Well, you know, we've started, I told my board about three years ago, that we've done, a, we've done a really good job of God's helping individual life transformation. Now it's time to transform our community. So we begin buying properties around City of Refuge that are uh, abandoned properties, dilapidated, overrun, and, and tearing those down. And we're going to build new housing. We'll start construction on a new 47-unit apartment complex directly across the street from City of Refuge in the next couple of weeks to provide safe and affordable housing for those in our community that want life to be better. So now we're starting to literally address the landscape of the community, not just the individuals that live in the community. Bring beautification, bring hope, bring safe and affordable housing to a neighborhood that has not had that for many, many years. So that's, that's the next big thing. And then the expansion into other cities around the country. We're in about 15 locations now with affiliates, and and the Lord continues to open those doors. So we're excited about the fact of using the model to impact cities around the country. I mean, you know what's going to happen. You know the city of refuge is going – this is going to happen. You guys, it's not something that's on the potential of, well, this may happen. It just may take a little time, and it's going to be awesome to kind of watch that area grow in that way and to to know – just a little bit of a piece of how it happened is going to be, it's going to be an honor. So we, we appreciate that as Georgians. Well, thank you. We appreciate all the partners we've had over the past 21 years. And many of those are obviously Atlanta folks and Georgians. So uh, we're really excited about what God's done through the friendships that we have. All right, Bruce, before we go, one of the things we know we have people listening to our podcast who are in a place in life of, they know God's calling them to something. They know that there's something bigger between heaven and earth than maybe what they're currently doing or where they're currently at. Is any kind of advice or thoughts that you would give somebody who's thinking about taking a step of faith into the unknown uh, and from a place of discomfort or a place of comfort to a place of discomfort, and they're a little hesitant? Um, is there anything that you, any piece of advice that you could give? Well, I'd say a couple of things. I'd say number one, if you wait for the right time, you'll never do it. So it's just, you know, so many folks I speak to say, well, I'm waiting on this and this and this to align itself. So that's just not going to happen. It will always be an uncomfortable step when you hear the voice of God and he asks you to do something. So I, I would urge anyone not to wait until all the, all the things are lined up perfectly. The second thing is I would say that if you don't make the step that you feel like you're supposed to and pull up the anchor and head to the next um, the next place that Father wants you to go, you'll always have a sense of discontentment in your heart. And, uh, and, and I would just, I would, I would hate for folks to live with any level of discontentedness when they could be at a perfect place of contentness, knowing that they're right where God's asked them to be. Wow. That is awesome. That is absolutely awesome. Great, great words, Bruce. Thank you. Bruce, we, we thank you so much for being with us on the podcast today. We, um, we love your story. We love what you guys are doing down there at the city of refuge. And we just, we love the opportunity to have you on board. Thank you very much. It's been an honor to be with you. 
All right. Thanks a lot, Bruce. We'll, we'll see you next time. All righty. Bye-bye. Wow. What an amazing story from Bruce Deal. The things that he is doing and led down at the City of Refuge in Atlanta, Georgia is unbelievable. I encourage you guys to go check out what the City of Refuge down in Atlanta is doing. Their website is cityofrefugeatl.org. Find out ways that you can plug in and get connected down there. They're always looking for help and support. So I encourage you guys to go down there and check it out. I just want to thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Love Period Podcast. We hope that this show today with Bruce Deal played one little part to, to help ignite the flame of your passion. There's plenty of work out there to be done. Plenty of work out there to be done. And know that you were created with a purpose and a plan with a unique skill set to go do those things. The Love Period Podcast exists to inspire hands for the harvest one story at a time. If you would please go ahead and subscribe to the Love Period Podcast in iTunes. You can also do that through Stitcher or through our RSS feed. You can check us out at Orphan Aid Liberia at orphanaidliberia.org to find out more about us. We also have the show notes there for this episode as well. We can't wait to share our next episode and our next story. Guys, thank you so much for downloading this episode. We'll see you next time.